I'd like to start in Mark 16 this morning. Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And the next verse you can probably just use your memory on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day and this time that we can assemble together and study your word and have fellowship and worship you. And we ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. And we do thank you as we open up your word. We thank you that you have demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus Christ to die for us so that we might have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every year, BibleGateway.com publishes their year in review, which includes the most popular Bible verses for that year. And what would you guess is the usual number one most popular Bible verse each year? John 3.16. So we're studying chapter 7 in the Baptist Confession of Faith of God's Covenant, and we're continuing today in paragraph 2. And the one time that John 3.16 is cited as a proof text in the Second London Baptist Confession is in chapter 7, paragraph 2. So we'll take a look at that today. Now, just for a quick review, last week we talked about how every worldview attempts to answer four ultimate questions. And the first question was, was, why is there something rather than nothing? So if you were to give a one-word response to that, what would you say? God. Creation. Creation. What's wrong with the world? The fall and sin. Is there any hope? Yes. yes. And what's the one word kind of summary of that? Gospel. Redemption. Gospel. The gospel. And how does the story end? Victory. Consummation. So creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And, and those other words are good synonyms too. So I like these little... Um, catechetical simplifications because as Thomas Watson said in his Body of Divinity, which is a commentary on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, he said, catechizing is the best expedient for the grounding and settling of people. I fear one reason why there hath been no more good done by preaching hath been because the chief heads and articles of religion have not been explained in a catechistical way. Catechizing is the laying the foundation, Hebrews 6 1, and to preach and not to catechize is to build without a foundation. And that's one of the reasons why we study the confession of faith, because these different chapters and these different subjects are the chief heads and articles of religion. So last week we touched on creation and fall as they re- relate to chapter 7, and this week we're going to touch on redemption. And in doing so, we'll be discussing the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So I'd like to reread paragraph 1, keeping in mind all that we discussed last week, and then we'll tie that in to chapter 2. So the distance between God and the creature is so great 
that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So let's see if we can understand where we derive the term covenant of works. Question 15 in our catechism asks the question, What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? Answer, When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. And you'll notice that I've underlined the term covenant of life there. And James Renahan has pointed out in his uh, commentary on the Second London Baptist Confession that the covenant covenant of works is sometimes also called the covenant of creation or covenant of life. And so that's why I put in parentheses there, covenant of works. And Galatians 3.12 says that the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. That's the proof text that was given there for question 15. And so what we learn from that passage is that generally speaking, regarding the works of the law, it's simple. Do this and you will live. That's the law. But specifically in the case of Adam and Eve, the citation was Genesis 2, 16 through 17, which says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And we get a little bit more amplification on this in chapter 19, paragraph 1 of the Confession, where it says, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So you'll notice the phrase that I've underlined, the law of universal obedience. That's the moral law written in the heart. In in Romans 2.15, it speaks about how that the law is written in our heart and our conscience bears witness and either excuses or, or accuses or excuses us. The law of universal obedience is the moral law and a particular precept. And that's a positive law. Positive law is something that's added. When we think of moral law, these are things that are, that are, that are right or wrong by definition. A positive law is something that's added. It's not, in and of itself, it's not right or wrong. Like eating a piece of fruit is not, in and of itself, good or bad. But because God made that particular law for Adam and Eve, then it becomes a positive law, something added, something that they have to observe. Romans 10.5 says that Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. And so we said, do this and you will live. That's kind of a a pithy summary of that verse. 
And the passage that we just cited said, personal, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. If you do this, you will live. Galatians 3, 10 and 12 says, As many are as, as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who not, does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And then verse 12, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. These are the proof texts that are cited there. And so, in other words, if you want to be right with God by keeping the law, it's simple. Perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. Do this and you will live. So commenting on this, Thomas Watson said, The covenant of works had a promise annexed to it and a threatening. The promise, do this and live. In case a man had stood, it is probable he had not died, but had been translated to a better paradise. The threatening, thou shalt die the death. Or in Hebrew, in dying thou shalt die. That is, thou shalt die both a natural death and an eternal, unless some other expedient be found out for thy restoration. Robert Shaw, in his book, uh, The Reformed Faith, which is an exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith, has a little bit more lengthy um, comment on this, but I think he summarizes it very well. And given that there's sometimes opposition to the idea or the term covenant of works, I think what he said here really is helpful. He says that God entered into a covenant with Adam and his state of innocence appears from Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Here indeed there is no express mention of a covenant, but we find all the essential requisites of a proper covenant. In this transaction, there are two parties, the Lord God on the one hand and man on the other. There is a condition expressly stated in the positive precept respecting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God was pleased to make the test of man's obedience. There is a penalty subjoined, in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There is also a promise, not distinctly expressed, but implied in the threatening. For if death was to be the consequence of disobedience, it clearly follows that life was to be the reward of obedience. That a promise of life was annexed to man's obedience may also be inferred from the description which Moses gives of the righteousness of the law, that the man that does these things shall live by them, Romans 10.5. From our Lord's answer to the young man who inquired what he should do to inherit eternal life, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments, Matthew 19.17. And from the declaration of the apostle that the commandment was ordained to life, Romans 7. And then he notes in conclusion, We are therefore warranted to call the transaction between God and Adam a covenant. We may even allege, for the use of this term, the language of scripture in Hosea 6-7, in the margin, and that's in the margin of the authorized version, the King James Version, we read, They, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Now, if you're using an ESV or an NASB, it's not in the margin. It says Adam right there in the text. They, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. This necessarily implies that a covenant was made with Adam and that he violated it. So that's the covenant of works. Let's talk about the covenant of grace. So back to paragraph 2, it says, Moreover, man, having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, 
it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. And then it goes on. Now, question three, question 23 in the Catechism asks, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. We get a little bit more uh, illumination on this when we look in chapter 20, paragraph 1 of the Confession. And of course, the, the Catechism is, all, is based on the Confession. Chapter 20, paragraph 1 says, The covenant of works, being broken by sin and made unprofitable unto life, God was pleased to give forth the promise of Christ, the seed of the woman, as the means of calling the elect, and begetting in them faith and repentance. In this promise, the gospel as to the substance of it was revealed and therein effectual for the conversion and salvation of sinners. And you'll notice that a proof text given there is Genesis 3.15, which is called often the first gospel or the proto-euangelion or the proto-evangelium, depending on whether you're uh, transliterating the Greek or the Latin. Uh, sometimes you'll hear it called uh, a passage about the skull-crushing seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, uh, God is speaking. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here we see in this verse the promise of redemption. And why was the skull-crushing seed of the woman necessary? Well, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So let's look at some more specifics regarding the covenant of grace. Let's talk about the free offer of the gospel. And we want to address this issue because sometimes people will ask or allege or assert that if, if you believe in divine election, if you believe in the doctrines of grace, if you believe in uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation, then how can you believe in the free offer of the gospel? Or how can you believe in evangelism if those things are true? So we, we want to be able to respond to these kind of questions, and of course with gentleness and respect. Uh, chapter 7, paragraph 2 of the Confession says, Moreover, man having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. And then here's where it continues. Wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. Now, uh, I can't remember. Let's see. In your notes, I think I only printed out three of the, uh, one line of the proof text there, but... Um, there's a number of proof texts given, and often it's very helpful when you have when we're when we're reading these paragraphs out of the confession to be able to to read the entirety of those verses because the details are really in in the proof text. And so, for example, when you read like a, a summary uh, of the confession, often you'll just have the text, and then the the verses are kind of cited as a reference there, but you don't see the details, you don't see the verbiage. So that's why it's helpful sometimes to have a book like this. It's a little bit thicker because it has all of the verse references, all the verbiage of the verse references 
typed out so that you can read them and understand what they're saying in the um, uh, in the text itself. And by the way, this particular book, the 1689, can be bought for a mere 16.89 pounds, which equates to a little over $20, uh, plus some shipping, or if you order two, you can have free shipping. Um, but they have all, the, all the, the verbiage of the verses typed out, so you can kind of read all of that in context. But if you don't want the 1689 for 16.89, you can get it for free on blueletterbible.com or someplace like that because they have the Baptist Confession of Faith. You can pull it up and you can hover over the little uh, the verse references and read them all there. So that's just a bonus for you. Um, but the verses are just kind of a launching point. There's often uh, more cross-references that can be referenced with a resource like the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. You guys familiar with that? The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It's an exhaustive cross-referencing system and, and almost all free Bible software has it. Uh, you can buy the book, but as it's fine print and you'd have to look all the verses up individually. But uh, anyway. So anyway, let's make a few observations about uh, the text here. Uh, we'll note in Galatians 3.11 that no one is justified by the law before God because the righteous shall live by faith. So, so in other words, the law does not justify because no one can keep the law with personal, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. So Romans 8, 3 through 4 says what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. So what the law could not do, God did. What we could not do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so consequently, to get the word out on this very important subject, Jesus said to us through the scriptures in the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's the free offer of the gospel. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. And there's other uh, supporting text uh, that we can parallel with that. We think about Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where he said, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Luke 24, 46 and 47 talks about repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts 1.8, he said, You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We can look at other verses like Matthew 11.28, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Isaiah 45.22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So when we look at all these verses uh, and, and someone asks the question, why do you, as one who holds to divine election or the sovereignty of God or the doctrines of grace, why do you preach the gospel freely to all creation? Why do we do that? It's because it's commanded in the scriptures. It's commanded. And it's our privilege and responsibility to preach the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, to people from, to, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And, and our responsibility is just to preach the gospel, and God takes care of the saving part of that. And, by the way, there's only two times you should preach. In season and out of season. So while it is true that the gospel is to go forth to all nations, it is also true 
that there is a giving of an elect people from the Father to the Son, and there is a giving of eternal life from the Son to all those given to him by the Father. And so paragraph 2 continues by saying, He promises to give to all those that are ordained to eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Now, this is an example of where it's helpful to be conversant with the King James Version of the Bible, because uh, if you're old like me, you, that's what you kind of grew up with at, at a certain level before some of the new translations came. But this phrase, ordained to eternal life, should bring to mind Acts 13.48, where it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So in the par- in the paragraph 2 of the Confession, it doesn't cite that cross-reference, but knowing uh, that verse from the King James Bible, that just brings that to mind. Now the ESV and the NASB say appointed, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. And it's important to see here not only what it says, but what it doesn't say. Because it says as many as were ordained to eternal life believe. It doesn't say as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. Now, why do I say that? And this is where it's helpful to, have, to understand a little bit of church history because um, in, in 1610, the, the followers of Arminius brought their objections uh, regarding uh, Calvin's teaching. And one of the things that they stated was that election and condemnation were conditioned upon the foreseen faith or unbelief of fallen man. And so the idea, you may have heard this before, that God looks down through the tunnels of time and he sees what you will do, and based on what you will do, then he elects you to salvation. But that was rejected at the Synod of Dort, and when we look at this verse, it's not, it's not consistent to say that according to Acts 13.48. It says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And so the confession, thinking about the time frame when this was, the, the Synod of Dort concluded their a response to the followers of Arminius in 1619. <clears throat> the Confession was published in 1677, and they kind of made a response to this. Uh, in chapter 3, paragraph 2, it says, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So in other words, God does not base his decisions on man's foreseen actions, but rather he promises to give to all those that are ordained to eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So we want to look at Ezekiel 36. Uh, That's one of the passages that's cited as a proof text. And when we do that, we want to take a look at who's doing the action. And so when we read this passage, I want you to note that there there are six I wills in the passage. Three of them are explicit. Three of them are implicit. And there's one you will. So let's look at who's doing the action here. Ezekiel 36. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And consequently, you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So do you see that? God is clearly doing the action here. He's the the initiator here. And what we see is a monergistic work of God. 
And this is illustrated in a, in a story that I heard. Again, I, I have not a lot of illustrations floating around in my mind from years of listening to J. Vernon McGee. So he told a story uh, one time about a boy down in his Southland who wanted to join a church, and the deacons were examining him, and they asked, how did you get saved? And his answer was, God did his part, and I did my part. And so they thought there was something wrong with his doctrine, so they questioned him a little farther, and, and they said, well, what was God's part and what was your part? And he said, God's part was the saving and my part was the sinning. <laughs> I done run from him as fast as my sinful heart and rebellious legs could take me. He done took out after me till he run me down. <laughs> so I think if there's any part that we bring to the salvation equation, it's the sinning and God does the saving. So a couple more proof texts that are referenced here in this paragraph. Psalm 110.3 says that thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Now, the paragraph talked about that he gives his Holy Spirit to to make people willing and able to believe. And and sometimes you'll hear people say, or you'll hear an objection that's something like, um, but we see in the scripture that there are places where people resist the Holy Spirit or resist God. And it's true, there are places where people resist and they will continue to resist right up until the time that God overcomes their resistance and you think about Paul on the road to Damascus he resisted God right up until the point where God overcame his resistance and said I got a plan for you and here's what it is so let's look also at John 6:44 this is a key key text here and um Keeping in mind what we said earlier, that there's, there's an, a giving of an elect people from the Father to the Son, and there's a giving of eternal life from the Son to those elect people. And I'm going to give you, a, I made a little algebraic equation here, uh, that when we look at verses in John chapter 6 and some other places, and, and to parallel some of the thoughts, here's the algebraic equation, so I'll give that to you, and then we'll, we'll look at the scriptures of how I, dero- how I derive that. <clears throat> So those given by the Father to the Son are those to whom it has been granted, are those who are drawn by the Father, are those who come, are those who are never cast out, are those who are raised up on the last day. So let's look at John 6.44 to begin with. It says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Notice I've put in bold him. And I will raise him on the last day. Now the reason... We're making emphasis here is because sometimes you'll hear that God has God just kind of puts it out there and He just leaves it up to you. Sometimes people have 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 framed it this way: God cast His vote for you, Satan cast his vote against you, and now the final vote is up to you. Or or they'll say that God just kind of draws everyone equally, and it's just kind of up to your up to you what you do with that. But but when we look here at John six forty four, it says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws." Him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So who is the him who is the raised up on the last day? The same him who is being drawn by the Father. And then it says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now here's a question. Are there people sitting in churches today who have heard the gospel, who have heard the teaching of the word, but they have not responded to it? 
Are there those people who have heard but they haven't responded? So what makes the difference between those who have heard and have not responded and those who have heard but did respond? It's, it's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It's the revealing truth. It's the, 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 the granting of a new heart. And so that's why it says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Those are ones who have been illuminated. We can also look in parallel, and I've given you a little chart there, uh, John 6.44 with John 6.65, because it used similar phraseology in the beginning. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. John 6.65 says, no one can come to me, same, same phrase, unless it has been granted him from the Father. So do you see that? So we can just parallel those thoughts and, and, and add, uh, add to our understanding of what's being said here. There are other references where we see that there's a giving of an elect people from the Father to the Son and a giving of eternal life from the Son to those elect people. John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he's praying to the Father, he says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. And notice that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So do you see that there is a giving of the Father to the Son, and there is a giving of eternal life from the Son to all those given to him from the Father? John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There are those who are given by the Father to the Son, and they will come, and those who come will not be cast out. John 6.39 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. John 6.54 says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there we're looking at the phrase, raise him up on the last day. All that are given are raised up on the last day. They have eternal life. They'll be raised up on the last day. Uh, finally, John 10, 28 to 29, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So again, there's a giving of an elect people from the Father to the Son, and there's a giving of eternal life from the Son to those elect people, and they will never lose their salvation. Let's take a look at John 3.16. We cited that in the beginning. It's a very popular verse, but it's, of course, important whenever we're looking at any passage of Scripture that we, we compare Scripture with Scripture and make sure that we interpret it in context. Um, you'll notice I've given you another little parallel chart there uh, comparing John 3.16 to John 6.40. So look at the similar uh, verbiage there. For God so loved the world, John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father. And I would just say that God's love and the demonstration of His love is inseparable from His will. It says that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him... John 6.40 says, Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him. Do you see how that's almost saying the exact same thing? And you'll notice that I've underlined the word whoever and the word, the word everyone. It's the same Greek words, the Greek word pas, P-A-S, or P-alpha, sigma. Whoever and everyone, those are synonymous. Everyone who beholds the Son or who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's that phrase again, raise him up on the last day. So, 
Think about this for a moment. When Jesus was speaking in John chapter 3, the passage in which John 3.16 was given, who was he speaking to? Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. And the Jews thought that uh, they were the only ones for whom the gospel was for. They, they thought that the fact that they were descendants of Abraham, salvation was only for them. Jesus was saying, however, that salvation is for everyone who believes. Not, and not everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction. Meaning, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And think about this, uh, when Paul said in uh, Romans 1, 16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation, to who? Everyone. Everyone who believes. It's the exact same phraseology. And then what does he go on to say? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so that's, I think, uh, makes sense of what Jesus is saying here. It's not, it's not that Jesus died for everyone without exception, that it's he died for everyone without distinction, and for everyone who believes, uh, salvation is provided for him. Uh, Jesus also said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, is that something that's done from some neutral position of one's own volition? When you think about, uh, you look at John 6, and, and, and again, it's helpful when you look at the treasury of Scripture knowledge or some kind of exhaustive cross-reference. No one can see that uh, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that kind of makes reference back to Ezekiel 36. Now, we cited Ezekiel uh, uh, 36, 26, and 27 earlier, but verse 25, there's some more I will statements. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. So there's that sprinkling of the water and the Spirit. God will give a new heart. He will put the Spirit within you. And this this harmonizes perfectly with what the confession says, where it says, He freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved and promising to give to all those that are ordained to eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And I think that's where also um, a a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes this whole uh, section very well. He says, If a man is saved, it, it is because God saves him. If he's lost, it's because he hasn't believed. And Paul teaches both, and you mustn't try to get rid of either. The last thing that I'll just point out here, and I didn't have room to, to print it all out on the page, but I've given you a link that you can follow, because again, sometimes people will criticize and they'll say, well, if you believe in divine election, then what about evangelism, what about missions? But uh, there's a list of about 20 different uh, prominent people in missions that held to the doctrines of grace, that held to the, the sovereignty of God and salvation. Think about uh, David Brainerd, missionary to the American Indians, uh, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. Uh, William Carey, who's the father of the modern missions movement, David Livingstone, uh, arguably the most famous missionary to the continent of Africa, Adoniram Judson, famous missionary to Burma, uh, Charles Simeon, Samuel Zwimmer was the apostle to Islam, uh, John Stott, D. James Kennedy, founder of Evangelism Explosion, and there's a number of other people listed there. So the point is, 
The doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God and salvation does not limit us in any way or does not prevent us from going into all the world, preaching the gospel to all creation and proclaiming that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you for this opportunity that we have. We thank you that you have revealed to us by your Spirit um, the will of God for our salvation. And we thank you for causing us to be born again, for granting us uh, eternal life and the joy and hope that we have in that. Pray now that you'd be with us as we go into worship and just continue to be glorified in our lives each day and give us the uh, opportunity and the, and the courage to share the gospel to all creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.